Good morning. Welcome to the first day of Advent at Calvary Church. We lit the hope candle today. First day of Advent traditionally has been remembering our hope. We sang about it, we've read about it, we've talked about it. That hope is looking forward. And before Jesus was born, the people then had hope that God was going to send them a Messiah, and they looked forward and looked forward until the day Jesus was born. And that hope was realized, and as Luke said while he was leading worship, we look forward now to Christ's return. We look forward to an eternity with him in heaven. Hope keeps us looking forward. So we're going to share some thoughts about hope today from the Christmas story, but the first question that comes to my mind is, what is hope? And is it any different than wishful thinking? Is hope just another version of wishful thinking? What's the difference between being hopeful and wishful thinking? Hope is a desire for an outcome that you can expect with confidence. There's a likelihood that it could happen. Hope puts its forward look on the possibility of a good thing happening or an expectation happening with some confidence. Wishful thinking wants something, a desire for something to happen in the future that may or may not be likely to happen. Here's an example of the two. Wishful thinking might look like this. I go to my mailbox with the thought on my mind that there's going to be a check in there for a million dollars. That's wishful thinking. It's very unlikely that's ever going to happen. There's nothing in my history or my life or my experience that indicates there's any possibility that one day I'll find a check for a million dollars in my mailbox. So if I go to my mailbox hoping for that, that's actually wishful thinking. Hope would look more like this. I look into 2024 with the confident expectation that God is going to bless me, God is going to be good to me, God is going to be faithful. I don't know what my circumstances will be like in 2024. It's not what I put my hope in. My hope is in God. And there's a confidence there because I can look backward in my life and see that God has been faithful through the years to me. He's been good. He has blessed me when things were going well and when things were difficult. He's always been with me. It's true today. So I can look forward into 2024 and beyond with hope, which is a confident expectation that God is going to be with me, and he will be with me all the way through this next new year. That's coming pretty soon. I mean, it's already the first Sunday in December, right? Hope is a confident expectation of something that has a likelihood of happening based on what God has done or what God has promised. That's where our confidence comes from. It says this in Psalm 62, verses 5 and 6 about hope. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. Hope is like fuel for the heart. Hope, I think of it like this. Hope is what gives me the energy. Hope is like the fuel that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning and do my day. It's what gets me up and going. Hope fills my heart. Hope is like gas for the chamber here, um, for, the, for the tank, I mean, to, um, to fuel my heart and get my life going and keep me moving and looking forward. When you don't have hope, the Bible says, it's like running out of gas. Proverbs 13, 12 says this, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. It's an anchor. Hope anchors me in the storm, whatever my circumstances are. And I know in a gathering this size, we have all kinds of circumstances and experiences. Some, for some of us right now, life is going really well. Everything's good. For some of us right now, life is hard. There's a struggle. There's a challenge in life. For some of us, we're in between. Hope is like an anchor. Whatever you have going on in your life today, 
Hope anchors you for the future. That's what it says in Hebrews um, 6.19. Speaking about Jesus and his coming as our Messiah and high priest, this verse says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Knowing that Jesus is our king, that he's our high priest, that he's our savior, that he's our Lord, it's like an anchor for the soul. So we don't drift around. That's our hope. And hope gives us a future. Proverbs 23, 18 says, there is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a future hope. No matter what the future brings, he'll be there with you. So we're going to look at hope from the Christmas story. I think every one of the original characters in the Christmas story, and when I say characters, I'm not talking about fiction. I believe in the Christmas story. I believe it's true. I believe it happened just the way the Bible says it. And every one of the players, every one of the participants, everyone we read about every year, I believe, had hope. They were fueled forward. Mary and Joseph, the shepherds, the magi, which are who we're going to look at today because of all of the various players in this Christmas story, in this Christmas account. I think we can see so clearly that the magi, the wise men, might be the best example of hope that we find in there. Hope drove them. Hope drove them to travel from very far. Hope drove them to study the stars and watch for the signs and try to find this baby Jesus that they believed was going to be born king. So let's look at the story of the Magi and find out what this hope thing is all about with them. I've, um, I'm going to read. I, I, um, I don't know if I gave the slide or not. Um, I don't think I did. Anyway, I'm going to read Matthew 2. The first two verses in the 9 through 12, if you want to follow along with that in your Bible or in your device. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's the part of the Christmas story that includes the Magi, the, the ones we call wise men, who traveled from the east to find this one born king of the Jews. And we're going to drop back in on one particular part of that passage in a little bit, but I want us to understand who these Magi are before we look back at that passage. I'm going to tell you what you probably already know. Some things we already know about the Magi is very common. Is the first thing, there were three gifts and they were real gifts. It was real gold, it was real frankincense, it was real myrrh, it was very valuable, and they brought those gifts to lay before the Christ child. What you may already know is there may not have been three of them. We traditionally say three wise men or three magi because there were three gifts. So we just associate the number of, of people with the number of gifts. There may have been more. The Bible doesn't actually say how many they were. We do know it's plural. They're referred to as they, but we don't know how many. could have been more than three, but it's okay. If you want to say three, there's nothing wrong with that. We'll just align one person with each gift, gold, frankincense, and more, but there may not have been three. What you may also already know is they probably were not in the nativity scene. 
When you pull up your postcards and your Christmas pictures and your nativity scenes, and you see the baby Jesus lying in a manger, and Mary and Joseph and shepherds and sheep and the, and the star and angels flying around, sometimes you'll also see wise men in there. It's very likely they were not actually there in the barn where Jesus was born. It could have taken them up to two years to find Jesus. And the scripture says they found Mary and Joseph in the house, not in the barn. So it's very likely they came a little bit later after the scene. Again, it doesn't matter. The point of the story is they were searching for Jesus, they found him, and they worshipped him. They weren't in the nativity scene, and I, I'm sorry to break it to some of you, but neither was the little drummer boy. <laughs> Here's what you may not know about these kings, and some of what I'm going to share with you now is the reason for hope for me for Christmas. It's based in who these men were, who these magi, who these uh, three kings, we call them. Actually, they probably were not kings. We like to call them three kings, but they probably were not kings who ruled nations. They were from a different order of men. They were um, from a, um, an order of magi that was very numerous. They were very in influential, but they were not kings. They have their roots in the Old Testament. We find them first mentioned in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there's a reference to five distinct classes of magi. They were Chaldeans, magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and soothsayers. These were the magi. If you trace these magi who brought these gifts to Jesus and bowed down before him all the way back to their Old Testament roots, what you find is these are Chaldeans and Assyrians, the enemies of God's people. You find these are magicians and sorcerers who did not represent God in Daniel's day. They stood against Daniel and God and everything that Daniel and God stood for. They're called soothsayers and astrologers and sorcerers. In fact, the word should tell us magi, M-I-G-I, is just a shorter version of magician, M-I-G-I, shin. <laughs> However you spell the rest of it, right? Magism is it's essentially a worship of the elements, of fire and water and earth and air. But it's a little bit different than you might think. The Magi didn't worship the god of fire. They actually worshiped fire. They didn't worship the god of water. They actually worshiped water. They didn't worship the deity of air. They actually worshiped air. They believed that the element itself was deity. So fire was deity. Deity could be found in the fire. So they worshiped the fire. That's who these men were who came looking for Jesus. That, that's their background. That's, those are their roots. These, these magi, these Old Testament magi, were about as pagan as you could get. They were about as far from God as you could get. Their history is enemies of God's people, enemies of God. Now, the order changed over the years. By the time it hit the time of Jesus' birth, they had grown into what they considered more of an intellectual scientific, studying kind of, of magi. But their roots, who they were, looked a little bit like this. I want to show you this picture. I copied out of a commentary book called Bible Manners and Customs. Um, this is a typical Chaldean uh, diviner. This is what the magi would have looked like in Daniel's day when uh, they were sorcering and astrologing and, uh, and standing against um, uh, Daniel and the Lord. You can see 
as you look at that, if I just showed you that picture not telling you that it was a magi, you would say that's certainly some kind of a sorcerer or um, magician. So this is, the, this is the background of the magi who came. Let's, uh, we could take that picture down. Um, am I ruining a Christmas story for you? Uh, I should have warned you that some of what I'm going to share might change the way you look at these wise men. But we're going to bring that back around because really it is such a source of, of hope, understanding who these men were and where they came from and what their background was. So by Jesus' day, uh, growing into a new order, these magi were men of science and learning and astronomy. They studied the stars. They studied charts. They studied history. And through that study, they came to believe that there was a coming of a new king. They believed the appearance of a new star, one they had never seen before, that they discover in the sky, was placed there to indicate that there would be a birth of a new king. And as they studied their charts, and as they looked at the stars and the movements of the stars, they determined that within a certain time period, there was going to be the birth of a new king. Through studying scriptures and scrolls, and, and, um, and historical documents and records, they determined that this child was going to be born in Bethlehem. They probably came from Persia to travel to Jesus' place where he was being born. That would have been a 400-mile trip from Persia to Bethlehem. It would have taken two to three weeks by camel, um, four, uh, four weeks on foot. I guess people walk more slowly than camels do. But I ask myself as I think about this, who these people were and why they came so far to see a little baby. And the answer for me is what, to this question, what drove them to make this journey was hope. It was hope. Why would you travel 400 miles on the back of a camel to, to see a baby? Why would you leave your home on the basis of the movement of some stars and scriptures, and prophecy, and having studied all that, put that all together. There had to be something more going on in their hearts to make them want to come see the birth of this baby, to make that journey, and to drive them that far. More than just hope to see a new baby king. Maybe. I mean, if you think about it, maybe. Maybe they made a 400-mile trip on the back of camels to see the birth of a baby who they believed would one day become a king. You might. But I have to believe there's something more going on there based on their studies, based on the scriptures, based on what they brought to the baby. That they were coming to find something more than a new king, the birth of a baby who would become king. That there was something in their hearts that wanted more. There was something in their hearts hoping for more based on some evidence. Remember I said hope is based on some confidence, on some evidence, something that points you in that direction. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. They had a hope, based on their studies, that said, this baby's going to be more than just a human king. This baby's going to be worth traveling to go see. And I draw that conclusion based on the three gifts they brought and what they did when they got there. So let's take a look at that. Matthew 2.11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother. They saw a child with his mother, Mary. They bowed down and they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. What those three gifts represented was this. Gold was gift that you would bring a king, 
Clearly, they were coming to find a king. They were coming to find a baby who would be born and grow up to be king. So they brought the appropriate gift to him of gold. And if they were only hoping for a king, that would have been the only gift they brought. They would have just brought gold. But if you look at the other gifts, it indicates that they were expecting something else. They were looking for something more. They also brought frankincense. Frankincense, incense, was something you burned to a god. It was a gift you brought to deity. So when they brought gold, they were looking for a king. When they brought frankincense, they were looking for a god. And the myrrh, now there's a crazy gift. Myrrh is something that's used in burial. Myrrh, in fact, is what was used in Jesus' burial. Here's an interesting thing. Let's run down this side road for a minute because I just, I love the way God does things. I love how everything is so precise and so orderly and so connected. Here's Jesus, born in a stable. We know the story, right? You'll find the baby wrapped in what? Swaddling clothes. What are swaddling clothes? Rags, basically. They wrapped the baby in, in, in cloth to keep him warm. And they laid him in a manger. He was born in a barn, wrapped in swaddling clothes, all wrapped up in linens or, or some kind of material, right? And the kings bring myrrh to the baby. You might think, well, where are you going with this, Rich? What does this mean? Let's jump all the way to the end of that story where Jesus is crucified. He's on the cross. He's suffering for our sins. The innocent Jesus, who did nothing wrong, never sinned, never violated God's command, never said a hurtful word, never thought an impure thought, never sinned, deserved no punishment, goes to the cross where we put him to death. He bleeds and dies. And somehow, I don't even know how this works. God took the punishment that we deserved and put it on him. Somehow, his blood, which should have been our blood, covers us and washes us. So now, when we come to Jesus and ask him to forgive us, he does because the price has been paid. He paid it. I deserved it. It was my debt. It was my sin and yours. But they nailed him there. And there he died. And what did they do with the body? Here's where I'm going with this whole thing. What did they do with the body? They took the body down from the cross, straightened out the limbs, washed it, and wrapped it. In what? Swaddling clothes. They actually wrapped Jesus' body in strips of linen. So if you picture uh, um, Jesus' body laying straight, washed, stiff, wrapped in linens, he probably looked a little bit like what we might think a mummy would look like. But they didn't wrap the linens dry. They wrapped them in what? You're going to guess? They dipped them in what? Myrrh. They dipped those strips of linen in myrrh. And they wrapped his body in swaddling clothes and myrrh. And they laid him in the tomb. What happened next three days later? Jesus rose from the dead right out of those wrappings, right out of them. So here's a wonderful thing I love about God and his, and his word. When you read the Bible beginning to end, you see these connections all over it. God does everything purposefully. He does everything intentionally and everything connects. Sometimes the smallest details, just like that. Here's this picture God is giving us in our Christmas story of Jesus lying in the manger with strips of linen and myrrh. It's like God is saying, hey, take a look at this, 
and look to the future because here's where your hope is going to come from. It's going to come from this little baby who grows up and goes to the cross for you and, and the tomb and raises from the dead. All right, so now back to the Magi. They're the ones that brought the myrrh. They brought the frankincense. They brought the gold. To me, these gifts say they were looking for more than a king. They were looking for a savior. They were looking for God. They brought incense. And here's the real key. Here's the real key to, for me to understand this. Matthew 2.11, I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to emphasize two words. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Those were the two words I was emphasizing. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those two words changed the whole thing for me. They worshipped him. If they were just looking for a baby king, they wouldn't have worshipped him. They would have brought their gifts. They would have deferred to him. They might have gotten down on a knee out of respect. They might have uh, uh, referred to his authority and treated him like a king. But they wouldn't have worshipped him unless they believed he was God. So that brings me back now to the beginning of their journey. They packed that gold. They packed that incense. They packed that myrrh before they started out. They knew where they were going. And they knew what they were looking for. These magi needed a savior. These magi needed to find Jesus the savior, Jesus the son of God. And when they found him, they bowed down and worshiped him. That's what drove them 400 miles. 400 miles on the back of a camel, probably, maybe walking, to find their savior. It was hope that drove them to that. Now here's probably, for me, again, one of the best parts of that story is I have to remember who these people were. As we think of the characters in the story, we have Mary and Joseph who we're going to look at next week. Mary and Joseph were, they were God's people. They were faithful Jews. They were already connected with God. I look at them and say, they should be in the story. They're like God's people. They're on God's team. And I look at the Magi and say, they're, they're way out there. These people are enemies of God. Their roots go back to Old Testament sorcery. They're pagans. What are they doing in the Christmas story? What are these people doing in my nativity? My picture of Jesus being born as Savior has people in it who are about as far from God as you can get. There's my hope right there. They came and they found a Savior. They knelt down and they worshiped him. So for wherever you are, if you are far, far from God, if you've never come to Jesus and bent down the knee and worshipped him, you could have spent your whole life as his enemy, as keeping him at arm's length, pushing him away. You're not going to get any farther away than the Magi were. Yet when they came to the baby Jesus, the miraculous thing is not so much that they knelt down and worshipped him, it's not so much that they accepted him, it's that God accepted them. God said, forgiven, cleansed, if they really did bow the knee and worship Jesus. So that leads me to something I just want to clarify from last week. I said something that I, I think, I, even as I was explaining it, I thought, I'm not explaining this well. Have you ever been talking like with the front of your brain and, and thinking with the back of your brain at the same time and sometimes they don't match? I, 
think that happened last week, because even as I was explaining this, I was thinking, this, I don't know if I'm making sense on this. And it turned out I probably wasn't, because a couple people asked me after, what did you mean by that? So I thought, just in case there's any confusion, I want to clarify what I said, and it kind of fits in right here. Last week, I made the statement that God doesn't save Christians. May you remember me saying that? Yeah, do you, were you thinking like, okay, this man's crazy. Let me explain, or try again, to explain what I mean by that. I still, I'm going to say that's true. God does not save Christians. Jesus saves people. Jesus saves people. Anybody, all people who come to him. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't matter your beliefs about how the world came to be. It doesn't matter your life, what you've done or what you've done wrong. If you come to Jesus and you bow the knee to him, ask for his forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, and declare him Lord and Master, he will accept you, forgive you, and make you one of his own. In the book of Acts, in the early days of the early church, people started becoming followers of Jesus. They came to him, they accepted him as Lord and Savior, they started following him, church started forming. People watching this started saying, they look like Jesus, they look like Christ, they, let's call them Christians, because they look like Jesus, they look like Jesus Christ. So the way this works is, it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what you've done, what you've said. If you come to Jesus and bow your knee to him, have your sins forgiven, and become his follower, then you become a Christian. That's what I meant when I said, God doesn't save Christians. Jesus saves people. And then we become Christians if we follow him and start to look like him. Okay, help me out. Is that any more clear? Good, because I don't want to do it again next week. <laughs> so, I, and so I wanted to clarify that because I didn't want anyone to be mistaking what I said. But I also wanted to say it because it fits in right here. Where is my hope? Where is my hope this December? Where is my hope this Christmas? Where is my hope this life? Just like the Magi, my hope is in Jesus Christ. My hope is in Jesus Christ for this life and the next one. I started out by saying, I have no idea what my future will bring. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen in 2024. I don't know what good or disaster might be awaiting my journey. But I don't worry about it. I really don't. Because I know where my hope is. My hope's not in my circumstances. My hope's not in my bank account. My hope's not in my health. Although I hope for good health. That's not where I place my hope. My hope's in Jesus Christ, knowing that he walks with me, that he's faithful, that he loves me, that he calls me his son for this life. But here's a, I didn't um, give you this slide, so don't panic when I read this verse. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That if my hope in Christ ends with this life, here's how I think about that. What difference does it make? If when you die, everything's over and there is no life beyond this one, Paul said it, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if there is life on the other side of death, and Jesus' promise to bring me to his place in heaven is true, and I put my hope in that, then I'm not to be pitied. Because Jesus is my hope in this life, and he's my hope 
in the next one. So you might be here today and feel low on hope. You might be. Uh, You could call yourself a follower of Christ and still feel low levels of hope. It happens. We get discouraged. Life weighs us down. We lose sight of the fact that Jesus is still on the throne, that he's still Lord and Master, because our circumstances are burying us. It happens. So my reminder to you today is, take your eyes off the circumstances this month and put them on Jesus. When you see the postcard and the little baby in it, when you see the nativity scene, when you get a Christmas card and it has a picture of Jesus on it, Mary and Joseph caring for him, remember that that's your hope. It doesn't matter about the circumstances when it comes to hope. I can still have hope. I can still have joy. I can still have peace and certainly love because of Jesus. Those are the four topics for Advent. Because my hope is in him. And if your hope is low, if you call yourself a follower of Christ and your hope is low, find somebody to just share that with. It's an amazing boost to hope when someone prays for you, when someone comes alongside you, when someone listens to you, when they put their arm around you and say, Jesus is still in control and he still loves you. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says that just as the sufferings of life of Christ overflow into our life, so his comfort overflows and that we should comfort one another with the comfort we ourselves have received. That's what we need when our hope is low. We need someone to come alongside us. So Seek someone out, call the church office, come to prayer at the round room in the corner before church. Come to prayer this Thursday night, 7.15 in the round room, and sit with a group of brothers and sisters who can lift you up in prayer, or just be in the presence of God in that place and be lifted up in prayer. Maybe you're here today, and you don't know the hope of Jesus, your Savior. You believe that Jesus was real. You believe he was born in that manger, to two poor people, Mary and Joseph, that he grew up to be Jesus, the, the, Jesus Christ, the great teacher, the great religious figure, the great moral person. But you've actually never come to the grips of the place where you've said, he's who he said he is. That baby is actually Lord of God, the Son of God in the flesh. I would encourage you to really think about that because that's the place that will anchor your hope. To come to Jesus and, and simply say, I believe you are Lord and God. I believe you are the Son of God who died on the cross for me. I don't understand it all, but I want to I say, I believe it. And then, there may be many of us in the room who are filled with hope, who know the hope of knowing Jesus Christ, our Savior, who know who he was when he was born in that manger and who he is in our lives today, and in the next one. And we celebrate that hope this month. Let's not be quiet about it. In fact, I'm going to call the worship team up here, and we're going to not be quiet about it as we end our time together. They're going to lead us in a, just a fun, great, declarative song called Go Tell It on the Mountain. And for those of us who are in this place today and say, Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my hope for this month, for next year, for the future. We have to shout about that. We live in a world full of people who don't have a lot of hope. So I would encourage you, if you're a person of hope, to share that this month. Be a hopeful person. Talk about your hope in Jesus, because you know there are people in your life 
who find this world kind of hopeless and don't know where to anchor their hope. And you can be the answer to that. So we'll sing this song as a celebration. We'll sing this song as a declaration. And maybe we'll sing it as a prayer. I think I want to sing it for me as a prayer, like a promise. God, Jesus, I'm going to try to do this as much as I can this month, to just be a person who talks about you and your hope. And that's what Christmas means to me. So, um, Luke, you ready to go? We're ready. All right, start us off. Hold on, Luke. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. I forgot to mention, and I put this on my podium so I would not forget to mention this. Um, we provided a little bit of a devotional for you to take home. It's going to be on a table as you make your way out today. It's for you to use once a week based on the four topics of Advent. So this week it'll be on hope. There'll be a scripture, a question or two, and um, an action step you can take. You can do it by yourself. You can do it with your family. You can do it with children. I would encourage you to take a few moments sometime this week and just read that one devotional, especially if you live in a household with other people, to do it together. If you're, if you're living alone, do it yourself and know that there are other Calvary brothers and sisters doing it with you this week. And so now, go tell it on the mountain. Here we go.